This is an interview with yeah. The Witcher on Sunday, April 18th, 2021 by Nick Perkel. Now, Matt, tell me about getting your first guitar. <laughs> um, I suppose I was about 14. Um, I think I, so the, the local mall had a guitar or uh, a music store and uh, they had like a special where they offered like lessons. It was like, like six weeks worth of lessons or something for like 12 bucks a week. It was like super cheap back then, you know? And uh, so they'd give you a little cheap hundred dollar guitar, a little piece of shit and a little uh, 10 watt, you know, create combo uh, practice amp kind of thing. And uh, it's so funny that this question came up. Cause like, I remember taking the ride to my, you know, to the mall with my mom in the car and uh, she had the radio on and like some, you know, mom rock station. I remember the song that came on the radio was uh, Brian Adams, Summer of 69. And there's that line where it's like, I got my first real six string. <laughs> and it was like, that was the first song I heard on my way to get my first guitar. And I thought that was really funny. I was like, I'm living this moment right now. Somebody someday is going to ask me this question about getting my first guitar. And here I am doing it. So I thought that was pretty funny. Now, were you involved, like, I guess in any music schools or use any private tutors growing up? Um, just for that little spot, right when I, uh, right when I first, that one of that first guitar story I just told there, it was, uh, we had a, I, the guy that did the lessons, um, was this guy named Steve Stein, who was just a total glam rocker dude. He came out, you know, he stood about five, two long blonde hair down to his ass, drove a hot pink Pontiac Sunfire. And he was just a mad glam rock to the bone guitar player, just a shredder. And, uh, he taught me for a little while. We did some group lesson stuff where I was in a classroom for you know with a few other teenagers you know kind of learning the basics and uh after that we took a couple of private classes and other than that like in my early teens i haven't really done any formal education on guitar since then how has the personality of your band like the songwriting changed with bringing in eris wales as your new drummer for cursed be by kingdom um, songwriting hasn't really changed at all. Um, maybe the vibe of the band and just the, uh, the, the overall tightness of how we play has really improved since he came in because he's just got great timing and great, like, just rock sensibilities about his playing. He's a very solid player, professional, you know, kind of guy. So uh, when he gets behind the kit, it just makes the rhythm section pop that much more, makes the band just that much tighter and, and more pro sounding. Um, but as far as the songwriting goes, it's really just kind of been the same process since the old days, um, doing the demos with me and Andy and then kind of working it out together as the band later on. What were some valuable lessons you learned from working with the guys in Night Demon? Those guys are just like, all, like just the ultimate road dogs. And they've just, uh, they've been around the world so many times and done all these cool things. And so like, they're full of uh, just little bits of wisdom here and there. And then working in the studio with Armand, you know, you pick up little things here and there. So it's just a lot of uh, business stuff and a lot of sort of behind the scenes, like how to, what to do and what maybe not to do. Um, that wisdom that they've picked up along the way that they've passed on to us. Um, anything really interesting or cool or noteworthy you want to mention? It's not really that interesting, I guess. It's it's just like, like I said, it's kind of that business kind of stuff um, and a lot of technical kind of stuff. I don't really know if I need to get into it because it's not that you know it's not that cool to talk about for most people I think but yeah just like like just kind of technical stuff now important question what are your three favorite Motorhead albums (laughs) let's see I'm gonna go with 
oh, I got to go with Ace of Spades on top because, you know, it's, it's one of those rare cases in life where the best, the, the most popular album is also the best album, in my opinion. Um, and then I'll go with, uh, I'll go with 1916 and I'll go with, uh, well, let's say Overkill. For the mixing of the album, you had Motorhead's sound guy. Was there anything interesting he had to say on how he wanted to see your album come out as opposed to Under the Witching Cross? No, Cameron was really cool. He was like really open-minded for what we wanted to do. Wanted to do. Um, there wasn't like a lot of direction from him on like how he saw it. It was really more like, you know, he's asking us, "Hey guys, what do you, you know, what's what do you have in mind?" And we have very, we're very anal about like how we want the production to sound. So we had very definite ideas of how the record was going to go production wise. And he was just able to kind of facilitate that for us. And cause he's just, you know, an amazing uh, engineer and, or not engineer, but mixer for in our case. Um, so yeah, there was, wasn't a lot of direction from him. What were some of the more ambitious songs in the album to compose when it came to arpeggios, different time signatures and including solos? Well, Valley of the Ravens has a lot of uh, like sort of layering on some of the guitar stuff. And so there was a little bit more going on there just in terms of the, you know, what we added to the, to the whole thing. The intro Ashe is a little more layered as well. So there's a lot more uh, just kind of like little things here. Like lot, lot, if you listen in the headphones, you can hear all these little things going back and forth and just lots of, uh, you know, a little cool extra instrumentation and stuff. So probably those two at the most uh, were, had the most going on. Everything else we tried to keep it pretty stripped down and, and as you know, simple and to the point as possible. I thought having that short instrumental start off the album really gave the feeling of a classic late 80s, early 90s release. Where did you get the idea for that? And can you paint the picture on how that song was composed? Yeah, it was just sort of like a, this acoustic riff that I had just kind of had for years, um, probably since before the second album came out, uh, well, even was recorded. Um, I didn't really, you know, really know what to do with it. I was kind of sitting on it. And uh, at some point, I guess, you know, the idea came up. It was like, that'd be kind of a cool idea for a album intro. And so I just started fucking around with, you know, the leads and, and doing, you know, all this extra guitar stuff that kind of goes on top of it. And we did a demo of it, really basic kind of idea. And then brought it into the studio. And then with Armand and then Eris coming in with some drum stuff, the big drums and uh, um, just like, like I said, that extra instrumentation, you know, there's tambourine and there's, you know, all this other stuff going on. So it just kind of got built. The basic foundation was laid down first, and then when we got to the studio, we kind of built the extra stuff on top of it. Now, what is your philosophy on having strong intros and outros to give a strong bookending experience for the album listener? We always, like, approach making records as, like, you know, we want people to play the whole album front to back, you know. It's it's always, like, the journey of, of starting the album. So we're always writing... I think the albums always get written with the whole thing in mind rather than just like, here's a bunch of songs and we're going to put them together on this record. So um, the intros and outros serve it to kind of complete the experience and to kind of give you, like I said, those bookends, give you something to kind of start and finish with. And then you got all this crazy stuff in the middle. Um, so yeah, we, we try to approach it from a whole album perspective. Now, what was the message you envisioned for the theme of the video of Valley of the Ravens? Um, well, that was the idea of uh, Kevin and Brandon, the guys that directed it and filmed it. Um, it was kind of like a last minute thing. We had a whole other concept in mind for the video. And then we realized that other bands were kind of doing the same thing. So we were like, well, let's switch it up because, you know, we don't want to just put out the same video that everybody else is doing. 
yeah, they came up with this idea for the horror movie kind of thing. And, uh, you know, it, I'm not, I'm not the right guy to ask about the video conceptually because it, uh, it wasn't really my idea, but they, they, they had this definite like sort of vision that we kind of worked out and flushed out as we went. And it just, uh, turned out to be this really cool cinematic type of deal. Just wondering, what was your original idea that you scrapped? Um, it had something to do with us in the woods with a witch and, you know, burning her or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. It was, we always kind of had this like horror movie, like a hammer horror kind of, uh, like motif for the, for the idea for the video, but just the actual execution of it was different in the beginning to what it turned out to be. Um, we ended up becoming way more expansive, way more complex. And the original idea was a lot more simple and just not, not as cool. So this came out a lot better, I think. What is the absolute rarest piece of Bewitcher memorabilia that you own? <laughs> I'm not much of a collector, so I don't know if I have a lot of, like, memorabilia, honestly. Um, I've got, like, you know, old demo tape, like, J cards and that kind of stuff um, from the early days. I don't know, man. I don't really have a lot of uh, crazy memorabilia. We just, it's a lot of stuff that we've taken on tour with us and never really uh, busted out again. So it's kind of like... Uh, those old stage relics and stuff like that that we kind of have laying around. <laughs> I see. Cool. Like just with me, I tracked down, I think, uh, all the original cassettes, like satanic panic, the midnight hunters, and, uh, I think grand rights of the wicked and, uh, one or yeah. two vinyls. But, um, uh, that, that's all I've got in my collection right now. But, um, favorite ghost story or urban legend from growing up in North Dakota. Ooh, yeah, North Dakota is, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's the most, you know, crazy state for that kind of stuff, but I, I know that one that I grew up with, back in the, like, the late 80s, early 90s, there was, like, this rash of kidnappings, um, and there was kind of, like, this little panic that went on in town because, you know, people didn't want their kids to get uh, kidnapped, so, you know, there was, like, this curfew and all this kind of stuff, and um, one of the girls that got taken, like, they never found a couple of these kids but they think they found somebody, the, the guy that, that actually committed one of them. Uh, but the rumor before that happened was that he had, uh, he had killed the girl and taken her and t- taken her to the old abandoned meat processing plant outside of town and uh, ground her body up into the, into the factory, uh, into the machinery. I, don't, I think they disproved that, but it was one of those little rumors that was swirling around before they actually caught the guy. So it was uh, pretty morbid, but interesting nonetheless, you know. Final words. Go buy the album, Chris Eli Kingdom. It's out now. Thanks for the uh, thanks for the opportunity to let me talk about it. Thank you very much. This has been an interview with Bewitcher on Sunday, April eighteenth, twenty twenty one, by Nick Perkel. <laughs>